future trends, deep insights, industry leaders. This is the iGaming Next podcast with your host, Carolina Perk. This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Solutions, the leading iGaming PAM platform with a modular approach, including many benefits like a fast, secure, and scalable API-based platform integrated with all major third-party products and services. Make sure you head over to Pragmatic Solutions and join our smart thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Play, an industry-leading content provider of slots, live casino, bingo, and virtual sports. Pragmatic Play excels at creating an immersive, engaging, and mobile-focused experience for players with over 200 HTML5 games that are available in all currencies, 31 languages, and all major certified markets. Discover more at pragmaticplay.com. Hi, everyone. Um, this is Carolina Peltz, um, your podcast host for iGaming Next. Uh, I haven't been here for a while. Uh, the startup life has taken the better of me, and my frequency of podcasts uh, has not been the best uh, recently. Uh, but I've got today Francesco Borgosano with us, who is the CEO and co-founder of Huddle. And with Huddle releasing very exciting news this week, I thought it was the perfect opportunity to jump back in um, and start my podcast all over again. So, hi, Francesco. Lovely to have you here today. Hi, Carolina. Yeah, thank you for having me. And actually, very excited, double excited to be like the first host after a bit of a break for you. So, honor yeah, about abso- that. <laughs> absolutely. And I think it also kicks off um, uh, my plan that I had for a while because I really wanted to switch the focus of this podcast towards uh, more sort of VC oriented subjects, startup oriented subjects. It's something very close to my heart, obviously, at the moment. Uh, so, I'm excited. This is this, you're my first guest. Now, you know, there has been a lot of press uh, the last uh, yesterday, actually, uh, but I would want to start with reiterating the big news um, of uh, Las Vegas stands. One, one of the biggest or the biggest uh, gaming company in the world, um, you know, investing money into Huddle. So tell us a little bit more about this uh, um, big deal. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's, it's a great time. It's a very exciting, especially, I mean, you know, as well as a, as a co-founder and CEO, the closing of a financing round is always like a key moment. Uh, you know, it's a moment when you get validation about your vision and, you know, validation about what you've done so far. Uh, and at the same time, you get the fuel that you need to, you know, move forward and keep, uh, you know, chasing the vision that you set up the company uh, after. So, you know, I'm very happy personally, as I said, as, as a co-founder, but in general for all the hard work that um, came into this from, from the team. And in this case, given the merger, as you said, because uh, this is actually a bit of a, we moved away from the traditional, let's say, startup path. Uh, you know, we started, we closed our seed round in uh, 2020, but then, uh, you know, as we progressed over time and we were uh, going after our Series A, uh, we actually had the opportunity to meet uh, the guy at Deck Prism. You know, I had the opportunity to meet in person Ed Miller and Matthew Davido, you know, the founders uh, and CEO and CEO at uh, Deck Prism. And, you know, given the complexity of the ecosystem and given the challenges of building a startup in, in our industry, uh, we really felt that this merger made sense uh, for both companies. Uh, there are like a lot of synergies uh, in terms of like people, technology, vision. Uh, and then, of course, uh, that was validated by the investment from Las Vegas Sense, which again, uh, for us was very important because, you know, it, 
as you mentioned, is a is a big name and uh, it's a very well recognized brand in the iGaming industry. So aiming the you know validation from the investment of Las Vegas Sands uh, is going to help any conversation moving forward. Uh, you know, talking to potential customers, potential partners. Uh, so that's that's why we're we're very happy about the the way this round happened with the merger and then investment of Las Vegas Sands. And I mean, it's something to be super proud of. I've been following a journey. Obviously, I'm good friends with um, Leo, uh, and we've been sort of exchanging founder uh, um, tips and, and challenges for a while now, and that's how I met you, Francesco. So, um, you know, really amazing news for you. Um, can you tell me just a little bit more about, because I think this is something um, people ask when the news came out, is this investment um, similar to sort of, uh, Leo Ventures, for example, investments where they invest in exciting companies, but the aim is to uh, remain on your B2B path um, as planned? Uh, no, actually, in this case, and, and that's something that, uh, you know, it was important for us. Um, Las Vegas Sense in that regard is treating this investment as a proper, you know, financial institution. Uh, like the investment, you know, as you know, they divest their B2C activities in the U.S. with a, a sale or their properties in Vegas to Apollo. Uh, and they're now very much focused on their international B2C business. They don't have any, you know, activity in the sports betting. So they, they're looking at this space purely as a financial investors, which is, is good for us because, you know, we still leverage the brand and the recognition the Las Vegas ends, but it's still leave to me and the rest of the leadership and executive team uh, a bit more freedom from a, from a business development perspective, from a strategy perspective. Um, so no, it's a, it's a traditional VC investment from, uh, because, you know, uh, I, I don't know, but this is, there have been a couple of announcements made by Las Vegas Sands. They already done a few other investment in the space and, Basically, last year in July, uh, they created this investment arm. So, uh, now in that regard, they're like a proper financial investor. All right. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that because it's always interesting. And yes, all their investments are interesting, and this definitely started to making uh, making some moves. Uh, now, I wanted to start um, sort of putting the focus a bit more on Huddle, uh, even though you know, in the investment and the name of Sands is exciting. Um, and the purpose of the podcast is to give the founders and the business the spotlight. Um, I wanted to start with your experience. You've got some amazing uh, credentials um, uh, behind your name. I think a lot of people know that uh, previously. You were um, chief analytics officer at Cambi, but uh, further down, you also have amazing brands like, uh, you know, the Stars Group and BetStars, um, as well as Ladbrokes. So tell me a little bit more about sort of the career journey and the, the moment that you decided to uh, co-found Huddle um, and, and how did this all come together? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I feel, I feel a bit old once you list all the companies that have worked, but yeah, I'm, I'll say now this is like my 10 years in this industry. So it's, uh, I've been in industry for about 10 years now. And as you alluded to, I started working for major B2C. So my first role uh, was for Ladbrokes. And I came in the industry actually with, with a very strong technical and quantitative background. My first role was a quantitative analyst. So I was responsible for building predictive models and algorithms for Ladbrokes that at the time was developing a proprietary technology. Uh, and 
throughout my career, I basically followed the traditional corporate uh, career. You know, I started as a quant, uh, evolved as leading the quant team eventually for Ladbrokes, then moved to Stars Group, which was uh, very exciting because it was actually the first time that I got exposed to a company. Because, you know, Ladbrokes was very much focused on sports betting, you know, oldest bookmaker in the world, a lot of, uh, you know, heritage, important name, but very much sports betting only. Uh, and then with BetStars, uh, it was very interesting because I got exposed to, you know, the online poker business and it was a proper uh, multi-vertical company. So that gave me exposure to other part of the iGaming industry like poker and casinos. Uh, and then in 2018, uh, which, you know, something that we're now seeing in the US, but in Europe, you know, there's been kind of a consolidating trend. Uh, starting, I'll say, 2014 when Ladbrokes and Coral merge and then so on and so forth. Uh, so in 2018, I wanted to move on the B2B side because my intuition was that there was a bigger opportunity as a B2B provider and there was a, a lot of uh, legacy technology and a gap that could be filled uh, working in the B2B space. So I joined Candy, who is, of course, a market leader as a B2B provider. Uh and I would say in the corporate, that was probably the peak of my career. As you mentioned, you know, I joined Cambi as a chief analytics officer. So that was my first executive role. Uh, but I was still in a phase where I was very much a doer. I wanted to do something. And of course, Cambi as an established business with a very large uh, customer base and a very uh, large operation to support and maintain. Um, so I felt that I couldn't really have the impact that I still wanted and I still believed I could have. Uh, and then, timely enough, the PASPA was repealed and Leo, that you mentioned, my one of my co-founders, uh, joined a startup in the U.S. called SimpleBet. Uh, so he approached me, he called me, and I was you know, very intrigued by the opportunity of joining a startup and working uh, in a more dynamic environment. I also had the chance to move to the United States, so uh, get exposed to the investors community in the States. Uh, so that's how I jumped into the startup world. Um, and then after a few years at SimpleBet, uh, again, I felt that the direction of the company wasn't necessarily aligned with what I thought was the biggest uh, opportunity in the space. So we decided to um, go our own way. Uh, at that point, we actually had expanded our network with the VC ecosystem in the US. So we decided to start our own company and founded Avo in November 2020. What's the, and here we are today. <laughs> what's the um, uh, story behind the name? Why Huddle? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so the story behind the name is that it's actually come from a... So my favorite sport when it comes to US sports is American football. Uh, so, you know, the huddle is the moment where the players come together before uh, each play. Uh, and for us, that's a moment, you know, when it, there are, like, say, two key aspects behind the name. There is one internal aspect, which is basically the togetherness and the unity of the team. Uh, and then the second aspect is the strategic uh, because the adult is the moment where you define the strategy and how you're going to move forward and how you're going to play your next play. Uh, so I think those two were the two kind of like key uh, factors that we wanted to uh, 
uh, translate in our brand name. I love the name. I actually came across this name when we were looking to rebrand and I was like a bit gutted <laughs> that it was taken. So <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult because, you know, there are other technology companies called Huddle. So it's, uh, it's going to be difficult, but Hopefully, we're going to be the Huddle in the Huddle, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, something I wanted to ask you now, we've got these interesting times now where LinkedIn posts are screaming at us about the upcoming recession and the impact on startups and, you know, all the sort of uh, VC influencers advising founders to keep a tight ship, um, that this is not the best time to raise money and the funding will be drying up. You have got big tech companies, you know, making massive redundancies um, across the world. Uh, and yet here you are, um, not only in an industry um, you know, that it's sort of resilient to recession to a certain extent, but we never know how it's going to be in future, but also in a, a environment where, especially in the US, there are so many uh, sports book startups, right? And we talked about it a little bit, whether the um, environment is driven by startups or VCs that want to invest in them. Um, so I wanted to get your uh, view on that, but also what's the success formula? Why why have you managed to, do you think, managed to secure this investment? What was so unique about how you guys um, thought the vision for the company? Yeah, lot, yeah, a lot of interesting points in the question. I'll, I'll start from the from the first aspect. And I think you're totally right. And for sure, I would say, unfortunately, startups are going to be casualties of this kind of like macroeconomic trend. Uh, and it was I would say my experience as well uh, during this uh, fundraising because because the sports betting industry is a new industry, especially in the US. So there's still a lot of uh, learning to be done from the investors community. Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges for startup founders today is the fact that we are looked through the lens of the financial market. So, you know, if you are a founder today and you want to start a startup in a sports betting, the first thing an investor is going to say is like, oh, well, but look at the share price of DraftKings. Look at the share price from Candy. Look at share price from GAN and Genius. And I mean, the list, it's, it's of course, very, uh, very long. So it's difficult to make an argument on why you as a startup with all the challenges that a startup has, you're going to make money in an industry that is bleeding uh, at the corporate level so which again in my opinion is not necessarily the right way of looking at the startup because uh of course you know each company at each stage has different problems but i don't think it's necessarily true that because those large corporate are suffering then you as a startup are going to suffer the same you're going to have different problems we're going to have different problems which is you know you need to scale you need to hire you need to uh, maintain the culture, build a culture, build a product, deliver product to market. But I think this is uh, a disconnect that there is in the market. So that's that's definitely an issue for, for startup. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be uh, still the case for, I would say, the next year or two. Uh, but at the same time, and you're right, I think the sports betting industry in particular is one of those industries that is less affected than others because, you know, PASPA is still only four years. So it's still like a kind of a growing and emerging industry in the United States. And uh, of course, sports is part of the culture of the, I would say each 
part of the world, but especially in the U.S., it's a, kind of a social cultural thing. So uh, there's still room to you know access capital, and and that's why we're seeing uh, a lot of startups in um, in the sports betting industry. However, I think there's still an unbalance between supply and demand. You know, you were asking about if it's a VC driven or a startup driven. I think at the moment uh, the supply of capital is not big enough to have a startup-driven ecosystem in the sense that, especially in the U.S., I would say there are two main groups of investors. You know, you have the, you mentioned Leo Vegas. Uh, there are others, uh, you know, largest like, there's like DraftKings as its own VC, mm-hmm. uh, exactly, Drive. So I would say you have the strategic investors, uh, which, of course, are, you know, these large corporate that need to diversify and potentially de-risk uh, their business. Uh, so they see that investment of sort of like a R&D type of project. If you do well, they're going to put you in, in the wrap of the overall uh, business strategy. Uh, but then when it comes to the actual proper VC, I, I think there's still like a very small pool of investors around sports betting. And especially in the U.S., most of those VC are connected to each other. Uh, so they are usually the, the one driving the narrative and they have certain hypotheses that they feel strongly about. So usually they're the one driving uh, the, the direction of the startups and you know startups that they get funded, which I don't think is necessarily a great thing for the industry in the sense that, uh, as I said earlier, I still believe that there is a lot that investors need to learn about the company. I mean, you, like myself, you are a founder that has been working in the industry for quite some time. So mm. you understand kind of the nitty gritty of operating a casino or operating a sports book. Uh, and I don't think necessarily investors add that full grasp of knowledge because it, you know, it takes years. I mean, after 10 years, I still have a lot to learn about, sure, of uh, course. about operation. And uh, so, yeah, so hopefully uh, once the market recover and the supply of capital increase, we will shift a bit more toward the founders and really having this innovative uh, spirit around the industry. But, Definitely, the U.S. is a is a fresh air compared for the industry compared to Europe. Like, uh, and this is something you know we talk with Leo and you. Uh, I would say off off the record, but we actually tried back in the days. I think I think it was around 2015 or 2016. Uh, we actually had the adult vision already at the time, and we wanted to pursue that vision. And it was very difficult for us to raise capital in Europe. Mm. Uh, because, you know, the mentality of investors is very different. Uh, you have mostly private equity and growth stage investors, so there's no really uh, a, this approach to risk investment like a startup can be. Uh, so in that regard, the U.S. is a bit more uh, open to risk and a bit more uh, startup-friendly. So I would say there are challenges in raising capital and creating a startup but definitely we're moving in the right direction 
Right. So, you know, if I was going to ask you about a couple of tips that you give to uh, other founders that are in fundraising mode right now, um, what would be your, your favorite one or the one that actually made the biggest difference for you guys? Yeah, I think that the one tip that I have, and I think for us was actually probably the biggest challenge when we do our fundraising is to actually talk about your vision. Like, you know, especially I would say as a first start, first time startup founders, we're always like a bit, not skeptical, but almost kind of paranoid. Like, oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't say too much about what we want to do. Like, we should be careful. Like, we don't want to give away our secret sauce or whatever. Uh, but actually, I would say the more you talk about your vision and the more, especially at the early stage, you know, the more you talk about your vision, the more you have the opportunity to talk to different perspectives, you know, even people that may not have necessarily the same expertise that you have, but they look at it from a different point of view. It really has challenged your assumption and really polishing your proposition. So mm -hmm. I think talking to us many people as possible is probably one of the uh, most important thing that you can do as a, as a staff startup founders. Uh, and also I'd say, especially for me was also like a great learning lesson. If you are a technical founder, sometimes, and that was definitely my mistake and something that I improved over time. Sometimes you get stuck on the solution rather than on the problem. Uh, mm -hmm. like, you know, because you know so much about the thing that you want to build. So when you pitch your startup and when you pitch your vision, you very much focus on what you want to build and why you want to build it and the technology that you're building and why you think that technology is going to be amazing. But at the end of the day, that's not the right way of presenting your uh, startup because at the end of the day, what the investor wants to understand is the other way, is the problem. Like they really want to understand what's the problem you're solving because understanding the problem means understanding the market that you're addressing, understanding the audience that you're addressing. So my advice would be if you're a founder, yes, of course you need to explain why your solution makes sense, but try to focus more on the problem that you're solving uh, and why that problem is important uh, in the industry. Uh, mm -hmm. And Do you the think there is a... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go. No. <laughs> and, then, and then the last tip, I think, which, again, was... Uh, I'm very happy. One of our co-founders is uh, Jesse Vactel, who is a you know, serial entrepreneur, not from the industry, but he has experience in building SaaS company and he had a couple of successful exits. Uh, I think having someone close to you or in your team that understand how to negotiate venture deals is also very important because mm -hmm. there are a lot of, you know, technicalities and aspects that may kind of like bite you back down the line if you don't structure the deal in a proper way. Uh, so that was something that we wanted to, you know, make sure to do that properly so we brought Jesse on board since early days as a, as a co-founder. So having someone that can help you negotiate the deals is, a, is an important thing.
for sure. We, we've got one internally as well. I mean, it, this is all very new to me. So, uh, you know, while I'm pretty confident on the vision and the actual um, uh, negotiating skills, there are some certain intricacies of uh, fundraising that is a never-ending uh, uh, learning journey. Um, for, for new founders as well within the industry, do you think that um, there are opportunities to attract a completely non-industry related investors because what well, we you know we've got a pretty well established um, ecosystems with strategic investors in the likes of operators or or big um, corporates we've got uh, angels within the industry we've got VCs you know alpha better capital all, all kinds of um, well-known sort of organizations uh, providing funding uh, but is the industry too niche and too specific to be able to convince sort of outside of investors completely on the problem and you know sometimes it's hard enough to explain the problem to people that worked in the industry like in my case i spent a lot of time trying to explain multiplayer technology for slots um you know trying to explain to someone that has never been to the casino or played online i find it an impossible task um but in general uh, do you think founders should be casting sort of narrow uh, and aiming for the industry only to for a higher chance of success or um they shouldn't just um, look look internally maybe also look at outside yeah actually i believe uh and it's something that I was alluding to earlier i actually believe that that pool is expanding uh especially because and that's by the way is also tied to kind of like why i wanted to start huddle and tied to the other vision i think with the U.S. market, there's going to be now a bigger focus on the technical challenges that this industry is facing. And that will open up inevitably. Uh, and you can see that now with you know, companies like Verizon and uh, you know, this large tech uh, you know, giant uh, started looking at the, you know, Amazon last year, I remember when they were uh, experimenting with like live streaming for their, you know, football games. Uh, so I think as the industry and the VC and investors start growing their awareness of the technical challenges and the technical complexity behind, the, behind this industry, uh, I think that will open up the opportunity to access capital, not only from the, you know, the usual names as as you mentioned, but actually from more traditional Silicon Valley and uh, technical investors. So I think mm. I would say probably today is not yet the case unless you are solving. Uh, for example, there is a startup that uh, I followed in the past, and I believe they. They do like great, uh, great job called uh, Phoenix. The, mm -hmm. They're developing this like live streaming technology uh, for like low latency streaming, and you know in their case, it's it'll say easier maybe to pitch to uh, a technical uh, investor, but you know maybe for us, you know like multiplayer casino, social casino, or a, a more efficient data solution for sports betting is still probably. Uh, too early. Yeah, yeah, I understand. If you don't know what's the inefficiency, uh, then yeah. it's hard to pitch the solution to that, right? Um, yeah. We touched a little bit on, on trends in investment, um, which takes me to the question, you know, as a startup, as a, as a thought leader and also an innovator in the space, um, what is your view on, on the big trends in the industry and where, where is it going in the next five years? Well, we are, I mean, we saw that already in Europe and now it's continuing in the United States with this 
consolidation and you know the MA activity hasn't really slowed down since as I said probably 2015 so the, I think the consolidation is still gonna uh, continue to reach that economy at scale especially in the US where you know the operating costs are becoming very very significant and where especially the sports betting uh, there is a lot of bleeding from a, from a financial perspective so I think we're still gonna see a uh, lot of consolidation going on uh, from a product perspective uh, it's interesting to see a bit more focus on the kind of like user engagement and customer experience so kind of building this more uh, you know immersive experience rather than the traditional kind of like transaction experience especially for sport betting higher uh, so entertainment value I, I like yeah so I think so I think that's that's refreshing. I mean, even if let's say I come from kind of like old school type of sports betting experience, so I don't necessarily uh, need that experience. You know, if I gamble, I know what I want to do, so I don't need any <laughs> entertainment when I interact with the sports. But but I can see why you know young generation or new users may want to have that. And, and that kind of lead to the other trend, which I think is very interesting and is going to add a little spice to the industry dynamic, you know, seeing all these media companies entering the space, like, you know, Zone and Football TV, Fanatics. Uh, and I think that will uh, probably uh, shape up the industry uh, in the long term. Uh, and then there is, of course, the biggest elephant in the room that is the online casino which you know at the moment is lagging behind from a from a regulatory standpoint but of course when online casino and in my opinion it will in the next five years like i think once online casino get regulated that will definitely change the entire dynamic because you know that's it's a way higher margin vertical and most likely that's what we're going to drive who's going to be the winner in the long term because sports betting has been historically more kind of a an acquisition channel and it's a more of a uh yeah way of attracting customer and grow your customer database but then the actual uh profit and margin make is made on the casino so i think that's going to be uh, a big shift of the industry once online casino get regulated. Yeah, I'm bullish on the last one, of course. I think there's uh, <laughs> yeah. much more to come from the gaming industry, and I think Absolutely. it's going to be a big wave of startups as well. Um, as you said, I mean, there are two types of um, ideas. Some are aimed at uh, solving existing problem within the existing demographic and their usage patterns, and that's great. But also, you know, Nobody needed an iPhone in the times of uh, BlackBerry, right? Especially in Absolutely. the business demographic. And eventually it did take over. Um, and it brought many more sort of additional revenue streams for the phone makers. Um, now, the last subject I wanted to cover, which is something that, uh, again, we talk about often. And I think it's um, uh, important to share those uh, uh, lessons and findings, you know, when it comes to building a startup from the ground up, I'm obviously at a much earlier uh, stage of the journey. We are now like 15 people, which I already find slightly overwhelming. You guys are up to 80, and I think you've got offices in in few places around the world. You know, your tech hub in Croatia, where you guys are very active in the startup community and very successful with recruitment. So well done on that, because I find it extremely hard, the tech recruitment. <laughs> 
Now we've got offices in London and now Las Vegas as well. So, you know, tell us a little bit more about the main obstacles of building organization to this size and how do you manage your workforce split geographically like that? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think that's that's definitely the biggest challenge that, that we face in the sense that, you know, when we start Huddle and I have to say it's the same for that prism and that's why it kind of like it's reassuring for and we have confidence for the future. You know, building the proper culture was something that we were adamant about and something that was probably our top priority along with the vision. So we spent a lot of time uh, building that culture, building the right mix of uh, young talent and, you know, experienced professionals who can uh, balance that off and channel that energy of these, you know, young uh, people coming in this industry. So... The culture has always been a priority. Of course, as you said, it is a challenge. And because, you know, we have multiple time zones, multiple locations, uh, different skill set, different backgrounds. Uh, so we had to, I would say, we had to sacrifice a bit of agility uh, to favor a bit more structured process. Uh, you know, we spend a lot of time in, you know, daily stand-ups, constant communication and alignment and while as i said it comes to a cost because you spend a lot of time talking rather than doing uh we believe that's that's the only way to ensure that you can maintain the culture and as i said yes you pay something in terms of efficiency but at the same time you gain a lot in terms of alignment in terms of, of uh, also engagement of people because you know retention is also very important for a startup because you spend time and you invest time and money in growing these people growing these resources so and, and we're lucky because so far we haven't lost anyone so mm. <laughs> fingers, cro fingers crossed that will continue uh, and I think that's because we have this culture that's because everyone knows what's the contribution what's the value and how they can make an impact uh, for the company, so yes, we we do that with a lot of uh, you know talking and writing, and you know we use a lot of tools for collaboration and planning and strategy. So that's mm. that's how we we cope with this like large organization. I think that there's a lot of uh, little nitty-gritty details that uh, people don't realize because, you know, for example, we are fully remote, so that gives us advantage to really cherry-pick some of the best people regardless of the um, lo location, and they also can move to different places, which uh, makes us a preferred employer for them. But with that, it comes so many challenges, as in different tax jurisdiction, different cost of employment in different countries, different treatment of um, equity rewards. I mean, try to get a company-wide travel insurance where you've got people in nine different countries uh, I mean I just face these decisions every day and uh, to be honest some of those they don't actually have solutions because being remote or geographically distributed is quite a new concept um, I mean in in the scale because companies used to have two three locations but they act as separate entities when you're one company with people everywhere it's it's just hard <laughs> so so there's pros and cons I guess yeah, no, it definitely is. I mean, and, I mean, the operational side, yes, I didn't touch about that. But yes, on the operational uh, aspect of building this company, it's it's hard. And my advice that for startup founders in general is, 
And again, it's a trade-off because it's not cheap. Uh, but, you know, we basically knew very early on that we had to almost structure the same as an enterprise. So we, we had like, we retain early on, you know, big four when it comes to accountants and corporate advisors and uh, just to deal with all the things that you mentioned, you know, taxes, mm. payroll, benefits, uh, because it's, uh, yeah, you, you really need like a professional <laughs> support yeah. for that. <laughs> you know what I find the biggest challenge in, in companies that are remote or they have sort of offices in different countries? The water cooler chats. And that also goes for hybrid companies where people work uh, from home. And, and we have an event coming up next week in Poland. And I was just thinking we have to cover so many subjects, do some collaboration, whatever. But actually, I realized that we need to spend the most time on facilitating water cooler chats because that's the one thing you really can't replicate on Zoom uh, is a casual conversation where people just talk about random stuff because it feels forced when you do it online, right? It's not yes. natural walking over to someone and picking up on yesterday news that it's the same for everyone. Um, so I think when teams have a chance to come together and just discuss random, totally not work-related things, you should facilitate it as, as soon as possible, as so as often as possible because that's what builds the relationships right yeah no that's that's a great point and i have to say this is kind of going back to what i was saying like my background when i was at ladbrokes and in, in that regard i'm a bit old school in the sense that i'm aware and i don't think there is any i think the pandemic has been just an accelerator but i think the trend of remote working was already there and I think the remote working and in general, like hybrid and more flexible working is, is going to be the standard in the future for future Elon generations. Musk would disagree. <laughs> exactly. But I have to say, same, same, same for me. I come from, and I started in this industry. And for me, that was very exciting. Like, you know, I was uh, at Ludbrooks, the entire company was in the headquarters. Like we had, we had an entire building it was the Ludbrooks headquarters and and for me, that was that was great because, as you said, you would just go in the office every day and you just talk not only with your team. You just walk around the floor. You go to the kitchen. You means you you know interact with people working on all sort of things. You know, marketing, finance, legal, whatever. Mm. Uh, so I think that that human interaction, yeah, you're totally right. It's something that it's very difficult to replicate in this hybrid remote working, and personally, something that I miss. That, as you said, there are pros and cons. So, yeah, as as long as you put in place the right thing to address the issue, I think it's if the hybrid is is going to be a a good way forward. Uh, Francesca, I'm going to start wrapping up because we're nearing the the time that we try to keep the podcast to. I have a very last question for you, which is if you were going to identify one uh, major milestone, which is your next big milestone for for the company, what would it be? Uh, I think the, the big milestone that we have now, I would say there are two milestones. There is one, which is the, you know, technical integration between the two systems that we have built, you know, separately within, uh, you know, that Prism and Huddle. Uh, so really leveraging that synergies that we've seen uh, during the diligence process. That's the biggest internal milestone. Uh, and then I would say externally, I think winning a tier one customer is going to be our biggest milestone because we have 
you know, great customers and we're very happy with the traction that we had so far and, you know, we've been able to prove the quality of our product. Uh, but as you know, this is like a small industry. So I think once you get on board that one customer that has that broad recognition, uh, then everything will kind of like snowfall after that and make easier to kind of like roll out your product on a larger scale. So I think winning uh, an important client is, is the next milestone that we're after at the moment. Okay, well, I'm going to uh, follow this closely and all the best of luck <laughs> with that. Uh, thanks very much for, for your time today. Congratulations again to, to the whole team and uh, and yourself and, and your partners. Um, amazing, amazing news this week. Um, and, and yeah, I hope to speak to you soon off record. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Carolina. Thanks.